At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Well, this is a little atypical this morning. We've got a plethora of stuff up here. We'll see how this works. Can you guys hear me okay? All right. You know, we had condenser mic problems this morning, and we're falling back to something a little bit different, but God's bigger than microphones. He's bigger than technical problems. I was thinking as we were singing, Peter preached at Pentecost. My man was unplugged at the time, obviously, and thousands came to Christ. So God is bigger than this. He's bigger than 2020. He's bigger than all the hurts and all the losses we've been through, and we can lean on him this morning. So the year is wrapping up. Christmas is over. Did you guys get everything you wanted for Christmas? Get everything. Come on, let's see some head shake. Yes or no? I see some. Yes, I see some no's though. Uh oh. Were you guys bad? <laughs> were you guys bad? Yeah. Okay, we were bad. Were you on the naughty list? Is that the case? Oh man. As a kid, did you ever wonder if you were going to make the nice list? If you'd be on the naughty list? Did you look at maybe friends or siblings and think? They're over there writing out their list of Santa. If they're pretty sure that they're on the nice list, I know what they did. Man, I'm a shoe-in, so I can start working on my list. Have you ever applied that same method of thinking, that comparative thinking to your salvation? Have you ever considered your transition from lost to redeemed and thought, I really wasn't that bad? You know, I didn't have that far of a distance to go to be saved. And we rationalize things that way as people. We think that salvation came easier to us because we never committed any of the big sins. We were never gun runners for the cartel. We didn't deal drugs. We weren't traffickers. The big sins like that. But that's where we are completely wrong in our thinking. The salvation of every believer is a total miracle. And according to the Bible, we've all been rescued from complete darkness into the light. Not just a little transformation, but huge. From enemies of God to adopted children. And while we might think in our head that we came a far less distance than some of the really bad people, the truth is that we were all completely and hopelessly lost in sin. We had nothing good to offer to God, and in fact, our hearts were in rebellion against him. So we can hear others' conversion stories. You know, you hear the conversion stories of, I was this deep in sin, and God pulled me out, and he made me what I am today, we can look at that and think, gosh, my conversion story pales in comparison to that. It's nothing. But the truth is that it was no less a transformation to take somebody who is kind and mild-mannered and to make a Christian out of them than it was for God to transform the life of Paul, who was Saul at the time, who was a laser-focused, hardened hunter of Christians. So this morning, as we dive into the text, we're going to see our drastic conversions illustrated in the story of Paul, the persecutor turned evangelist. Just like Paul, we need a complete spiritual overhaul, not just a minor adjustment. And that's the basis of the text this morning. The gospel of grace completely transforms us for God's glory. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1 this morning. Paul's writing to the churches that he planted on his first missionary journey. He made his way through the area, planted these churches, and now about three years later, he's back in that area, and he's getting reports that these churches have fallen into some legalism. 
They took the gospel of grace that Paul preached, salvation by grace alone, and they thought, well, it would be better if we were doing something in addition to grace. And they're preaching that in their churches, works plus grace. And as they begin to base this salvation partly on the things that they are doing, they're discounting Paul's original testimony. And as they discount that, they're discounting Christ who gave that to Paul to preach. So let's look at a few preface verses to set the stage for what we're about to learn this morning. We're going to start in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. It's on the screen. Maybe it's on your phones. Maybe you've got a paper Bible with you. Let's follow along. Galatians chapter 1, 11 and 12. Paul writes, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul confronts the Galatian church's drift, their drift towards legalism, by clarifying that the gospel of grace isn't something that man thinks up. He's telling them it has divine origins. It was given to him to preach directly by Christ. More recently, in the last century or two, Charles Spurgeon doubles down on the source of the gospel. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon had to say. He says, brethren, we have not received the gospel, nor do we now receive it because of the teaching of man or any set of men. Do you receive anything because Calvin taught it? If so, you need to look at your foundations. Do you believe a doctrine because John Wesley preached it? If so, you have reason to mind what you are believing. God's way by which we are to receive the truth is to receive it by the Holy Spirit alone. So this salvation of grace, or in other words, being saved as an undeserved gift, is definitely not something that would be dreamed up by man. It's actually offensive to our sensibilities when we think about it. People are drawn to a works-based system. That's who we are. How many of you like to check things off of a list to see what you're getting done? I know I do. Christmas time, you got dozens of things that have to be done. It's nice to go to that list and check, 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 check. Remodeling a kitchen, I had a list of like 300 things every night. Even if it didn't seem like anything got done, I could check two things off, and I knew that Bill was making progress. We like to see the action that drives the result. We like to be a part of what is happening that pushes us toward the goal. Salvation as a free gift that's totally undeserved is a difficult thing for us to understand because it's completely counterintuitive to us. We value rewards based on our accomplishments. We want to check that box. And these people, these churches of the Galatians, were no different. So salvation by grace alone is what Paul preached originally as he planted these churches and what he's explaining to them in this letter. But this time, he's going to discredit their legalistic tendencies by magnifying the power of grace in his own life. He's going to say back to these Galatian churches, you think you need grace plus something? Look at how far gone I was and what grace did for me. We're going to look at verses 13 and 14, and Paul's going to shine a spotlight on who he was before Christ. And in doing so, he's going to show the Galatians who they were. And he's also thousands of years later showing us who we were, so that we will understand that because of our sin, we are in desperate need of grace. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. This is Paul illustrating who he was before Christ. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 
and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. In these verses, Paul is illustrating who he was before Christ, saying that he persecuted the church. He's trying to show a picture of how bad he was and what grace did for him. And while he does say that he was violently persecuting the church and he says he was trying to destroy it, he still may be falling short of illustrating exactly how against God he was at that time, how much he was in opposition to Christians. We know that he was present for the martyrdom of Stephen. He approved of that. We know that he dragged Christians to jail. We know bigger than that that he was approving of Christians being executed. He cast his vote for the death of many Christians. Acts 26 tells us that. In the book Antiquities of the Jews, the Jewish-turned-Roman historian Flavius Josephus records that Paul went so far as to run a shock and awe campaign against Christians. It's, it's tough to think about that. But it records that Paul actually went in and burned towns and villages to the ground because they associated with Christians. This is how far gone Paul was. He wanted to stamp out Christianity completely, and on the road to Damascus, when he met Jesus, that's exactly what he was going to do, to stamp out Christianity completely. Sounds like Paul really needed grace, doesn't it? Do we need grace any less than Paul did? Are we any different than Paul, this hunter of Christians? Our minds like to drift back to that, I wasn't all that bad scenario. But the Bible tells us that our sin load just was just as severe prior to the saving knowledge of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read that in our sinful state, we are described as children of wrath. But if we look at the Greek roots of that phrase, children of wrath, it's literally defined as to be full of anger, teeming with an anger that boils over within us. In other Greek literature, this word phrase is used to describe a plant or a fruit that is so ripe that it's bursting, the skin is bursting, and the juice is running out. So if we apply that back to the children of wrath, we see that here we are filled with temper and anger and indignation and violent emotions so much that there is no room for anything else in us. We're so full that this wrath is dripping from us uncontrollably. That's a picture of who we are. When we think that we weren't that bad, consider that. That's what God says we were. And that'll deflate that I wasn't that bad mindset. But thankfully, we're not left in that pile of dripping, teeming anger. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond knowing how far gone we were and how great the redemptive work of Jesus was? And the application for us is adoration. It should drive us to our knees in thanksgiving that God would die for us while we were still sinful enemies boiling over with anger. And what a marvelous transformation it is to take that vile creature, to cover it with the righteousness of Jesus. Be certain, Christian, that your coming to faith is nothing short of miraculous. And that leads us into our second point, that conversion is God's work in our lives. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. This is Paul speaking about his conversion, coming to faith in Jesus, 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. These two verses, these are jam-packed. 
we're going to dive in. We're going to uncover four marvelous truths of conversion. It's going to detail out Paul's conversion. But as you hear these, allow it to embolden your faith because everything that is true of Paul coming to Christ is also true of you. So the first truth that we see in verses 15 and 16, conversion is God's intervention in our lives. Verse 15 begins with a wonderful conjunction. We see it starts with, but when. A conjunction is the literary glue that holds two clauses together. And Paul's using it here to link who he was, the persecutor in verse 14, with what God had planned, the preacher, evangelist, apostle, in verse 15. And we see this conjunction throughout the Bible showing God intervening in people's lives so that he will be glorified. We see it in Joseph's life as he was thrown into a pit by his brothers, sold off into slavery. They had planned for awful things for him, but God had planned to use Joseph to save thousands. We see it in Acts chapter 3. Peter's preaching to the Jews at Pentecost. He's telling them, you killed the author of life. That's bad. But God raised him from the dead. And if we can revisit that children of wrath example, we can see this conjunction applied to us. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5. It says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This seems hopeless, but God thought differently. Verse 4 starts and says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The gospel is a rescue mission. And our conversion is the point where our lives, our souls, receive that holy conjunction of but God. I, you, collective we were all bound for hell we had nothing good to offer but God stepped in and pursued us he called us he rescued us and he redeemed us second truth we see here in these two verses is God's eternal planning scheduled our conversion Paul writes in verse 15 God who had set me apart before I was born just as with the prophets and the disciples and the apostles before God has set you and I apart as well. He's called us as a people for himself. While we had yet to even believe yet or yet to respond, he graciously decided that we would be his. Even though we were still in rebellion against him, he was extremely patient. And he called us in his time and for his purpose. Aren't you glad that he scheduled your conversion? Aren't you glad that he called you for this time here? for a time to glorify him in this community. We're right on the precipice of moving into a new facility right downtown. God has you here for that, on purpose. Aren't you glad he called you in this moment to be used in the lives of your children or in the lives of your grandchildren? Many say that that's the greatest mission field we can be in, is preaching the gospel to our children. And there's our friends and our neighbors and those who are in our workplace. God called us. He scheduled our conversion for right now to be used by him in the lives of all of those people. The third truth that we see in verse 15 is that our conversion requires God's gracious voice. Paul said, God called me by his grace. And that call was powerful and irresistible in Paul's life. 
It's no different for us. Our Heavenly Father's call is a lot different than an earthly father's call. I can yell to my kids, it's time for dinner. I can yell to them, time to clean your room. They may or may not do it. It may require a face-to-face visit by me to actually motivate them. But it's not the same when God calls. God's call is action. God's call is deed. In Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. We don't read that slowly over the course of hours, light appeared on the horizon. We don't see that light faded in over the course of millennia. But what we do read is that there was light. God spoke it, and it happened. His word is deed. Thousands of years later, we have a great windstorm, and the waves are crashing into the boat, and the disciples are panicked. They wake Jesus and say, don't you care that we're about to die? Does Jesus get up and whimper to the waves? No. He says in that powerful voice, he says, be still. And everything that was crashing around them became silent because his voice is action. His voice is deed. In the narrative, as little as a few weeks later, Jesus shows up in the village of Bethany. To the casual observer, it seems like he's about four days late. Lazarus is in the tomb. He's been dead for a while. And it makes it clear that he is actually dead. Does Jesus panic and offer an incantation or try to perform CPR? No. It's that voice. It says, Lazarus, come out. And that voice had Lazarus walk out of that grave. Church, that powerful voice came to you. It may have come over time or it may have come abruptly like it did to Paul. But the voice of the living God called you to salvation in a powerful and irresistible way. And we responded in faith because God's call is action. God's call is deed. And on that day when the voice of God called you effectively, your changed heart allowed you to see the glory of Christ. That's the fourth truth that we're seeing in these verses. Paul writes in verse verse, uh, 16, God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Just like Paul, we have heard the name of Jesus many times before we came to saving knowledge of him. This is, again, the result of his perfect timing, his great patience. And this can give us great hope as we pray for uh, lost loved ones, that God reveals himself to them in his perfect time through Jesus. In the early to mid-90s, there were these pictures that were in all the malls, It was like a jumble of images. And within those images, if you looked at it a certain way, there was a 3D image that would come out. Do you guys remember those? You could see them all over the place. And I was in Southern California at the time, and we would leave our base and go to the mall to feel like a normal person and go through these shops, and you would see these these pictures, these 3D images. But I was the only person that couldn't see them. I thought it was a big conspiracy against Bill that there really wasn't a 3D image within it. And I would try all the cross your eyes or just let your mind go blank, things that people would tell me, but I couldn't see them. Then one day, by myself, with nothing else to do, I drove into the mall, grabbed an orange Julius, because those are awesome, and went and stood in that store and went from picture to picture. Jumbled up images of horses, nothing. Jumbled up images of trains, nothing. Jumbled up images of dinosaurs. And then out of that picture, 
jumped a Tyrannosaurus Rex, three-dimensional image. And once I saw that one, I could go back to the others and you could see it. There was a train, there was a stallion. The image had been revealed to me. And this is how it happens with our salvation. Apart from a work of the Spirit within us, we cannot see the severity of our sin. We can't see the need for Christ as our Savior until Paul writes, God was pleased to reveal his Son to me. So the really big question this morning is, has God revealed his Son to you? Has the Lord opened your eyes to the saving power that exists in Jesus? He came to this earth, he lived a sinless life, and he died in our place to satisfy the wrath of our God concerning our sin. When we believe in him, when we turn from our sin and follow him in faith, his sacrifice covers us with his perfection. We no longer are seen by God dripping and oozing with wrath. Instead, he sees the perfection of Jesus when he looks at us. Have you responded in faith to this beautiful call? Have you responded to his invitation of peace and rest that's found only in Jesus? If you haven't, don't let today pass you by. Talk to one of us. We'd be happy to show you in God's word how you can know that peace and rest. Christian, how about you? How do we respond this morning? We know Christ is our Savior. How do we respond when we see that we have this gift of immeasurable value, especially one that we did not deserve and could never work toward paying off? And the answer is our third point. Because of grace, be faithful to Jesus. Let's read Galatians 1 again down verses 22 to 24. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So here we have, after a 14-year road trip of learning from Jesus in the Arabian wilderness and preaching and traveling, Paul finally unrolls his formal ministry. And at that time, people began to realize that he was the former persecutor. That's the guy that was running a shock and awe campaign and burning towns and villages, and now he's preaching the risen Christ. We read in verse 24 that people glorified God because of him. Were they glorifying God because of Paul personally? No. They were glorifying God because in Paul they saw a life changed by Christ. The old was gone. And they were giving glory to God because of his power to redeem somebody who was even as far gone as Paul was. So as a Christian, do people glorify God because of the change that they see in your life? Our faithfulness to Jesus is evident as our lives are changed from the old to the new. So what does a changed life look like? Maybe you're being changed from a life of anger to one of kindness or patience. Perhaps a life of selfishness, which could be selfishness with time, with your love, with your money. Maybe that selfishness is being replaced by generosity. Is an old prideful self, maybe even spiritually prideful, being replaced by a changed life of humility? Is a desire for the things of this flesh and the things of this world being replaced with the desire for the fruit of the Spirit, a desire for more of Christ? That's what a changed life looks like. Praise God that just like Paul, 
He's changing you in many ways so that his glory will be wonderfully proclaimed in your life. We've read this verse from 1 Peter many times, especially in the past with our sermon series that we just went through, but it beautifully illustrates this point. 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In other words, we're a changed people. We can't be living a life of sin and be a chosen race. We can't be dripping and oozing with wrath and be a royal priesthood. We're a changed people by Christ. So the question is, why? The answer is right there. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Church, we are called and we are changed to bring glory to God. Our conversion... This transformation that we undertook into this royal priesthood came with a commission. We're to live for him. Not by anything in us, not by our power, but through him alone. And as we yield to the Spirit's transformative work in our lives, we're making him known to a lost world. And with these new faith-filled lives and the truth of the gospel, we are wonderful witnesses to others that his call is effective His salvation is free, and again, we can find complete rest in him. So, Eric, if you guys want to come forward now for the final song as we close, just in summary here, Paul's story exemplifies that God loves to save. He loves to completely transform the lost for his glory. It also highlights that nobody, not even the worst of us, is beyond the reach of his amazing grace. So earnestly seek the salvation of friends and family. Earnestly pray for them. Share the word of God with them. Pray that he will reveal himself to them in his perfect time. Because the gospel of grace that's entrusted to us is not just a good piece of advice dreamed up by man. It's the good news of God's plan to save the hopelessly lost through the sacrifice of his son. Lord, what a sacrifice it is. We're so thankful that you came to this world, that you lived a sinless life, and you died in our place. And God, knowing you personally is such a relief that we can be free from working, free from wondering, and we can rest completely in you, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you had the power over sin and death, We ask that as your spirit works in our lives, that we would yield to the spirit, that we could be changed more in the image of Christ, and that others would know us because of that change, know you because of that change. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.